Well, good morning, everyone. If you want to wander back to your seats, great to see you all. Thanks for being here, guys. I always think, how cool is it? You know, like, you could be anywhere right now, but you're here. Um, and you're listening to me this morning, so hopefully that works out well for you. Um, <laughs> it's not a decision you regret later on. <laughs> if we haven't met before, my name's Sam. Um, and... Yeah, I love getting together in this family community together to look at God's Word. This morning, I want to ask you to consider how do promises impact the way that you live? How do promises impact the way that you live? I'm using the term promises here pretty broadly because I think that for all of us, we are impacted on a daily basis by a range of different promises. So someone in your household might make a pretty casual promise to pick up groceries on the way home from work. Someone else in the house might make a promise to take the garbage out on a Thursday night. These are pretty important things for how we arrange our lives, right? And then we probably have some more formal promises in place as well. There's probably a written contract that you have with your employer that represents a promised arrangement that you'll do a certain amount of work and they will pay you a certain amount of money. If you're renting, there's probably a written lease agreement that again represents a promised arrangement. You're going to pay some rent and they're going to provide you with a place to live. And the reason that promises are so important is that they shape our expectations. When we have a very clear expectation of how somebody will behave, what they're going to do, then we use that expectation to govern our own behaviour and to shape our lives and to make our decisions. In short, we live our lives, we live our whole lives based on the promises of others. And this is part of what makes human communities so dynamic and diverse and beautiful but it's also part of what makes human communities so vulnerable. And you look at scripture and we have all of these different examples of promises and agreements and covenants. And sometimes that's just one human making a promise to another human. And sometimes God is involved. And when we look and compare all of these different examples of promises in scripture, a pretty striking pattern emerges. And I'm sure... A lot of us who have spent any time in Scripture would be familiar with it. That if you have people making promises, then it's almost always just a matter of time before somebody drops the ball, they break the promise, they let other people down. But by contrast, if it's God making the promise, then nobody is ever let down. The promise is fulfilled because God always does what he says he will do. He has this perfect track record when it comes to keeping promises. And I think there's a sense in which we could look at the biblical story as this story of God covering over the weakness and the frailty of our broken human promises with the strength and the certainty of his promise. This is the promise that we have in Jesus, that God looks at us and he, he knows that no matter how hard we try, no matter how many times we promise, yes, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to live for you, we just can't live a perfect life. It's almost guaranteed that we're going to end up breaking our promises and letting other people down. But God has a solution to that, and he sent his perfect son, Jesus, 
to pay our debt, to resolve the consequence of those broken promises. And then God says, I've got a new promise for you as long as you're willing to repent for those broken promises, for letting others down, for letting me down. As long as you're willing to believe that Jesus really has paid that price, I'm going to wipe your slate clean. And you get to start afresh every time you're willing to repent and believe. And that is the pattern, isn't it, that we enter into as followers of Jesus. Repent and believe and we get to start again. It's God's strength, the certainty of his promise covering over our broken promises. That's a beautiful thing to celebrate. As we think about promises this morning, there's two key takeaways that I want for us. And the first is a little bit sobering, but I think it's, it's worth saying that while healthy community is an essential part of living a rich and a full life, we've got to be prepared to face broken promises, don't we? We've got to be prepared that other people are going to let us down. And we've got to be prepared as well to be humble enough to acknowledge when we've let others down. And the second key takeaway is that we must make sure that at the core our lives are built around the promises of God because nothing, nothing else is certain enough. He's got to be at the center, the certainty of who he is. And his promises offer us something constant that we can live by no matter what happens. His promises to provide and to sustain and to comfort us. Now, specifically, I want us to consider, too, that some of God's promises are so ancient, they reach back some 3,000 years or more, and they have shaped the course of entire nations and entire generations of religious movements. And that's specifically one of the promises that we're going to look at in the passage today. But before we get stuck into that, why don't I pray for us? Abba, I thank you that you are here with us. And I thank you that you've given us your word and your Holy Spirit so that we can get to know you better. And I thank you for your promise, Holy Spirit, that you will open our hearts and minds to understand your scripture better. We just invite you to do that in us today, right here. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. So I'd really ask uh, that you carefully consider everything that I bring this morning. Don't take it at face value, but test it against Scripture for yourself. That is the privilege and the responsibility that we each carry as followers of Jesus. As we look at this passage, I think we're going to see it's sort of a simple story at first glance. David comes up with this new idea for how he wants to honor God. Seems like a pretty good idea. But then surprisingly, God steps in and he says, nope, that's not going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And then God shares a whole lot of his plans with David, which happen to include a long string of God's promises. And then right at the end of the passage, David has an opportunity to respond to God in thanksgiving. There's a few things that I want us to focus on as we step through this passage. Firstly, I want us to consider David's initial focus, the way that he's looking at the situation. And then I want us to take note of the way that God refocuses David using these promises. As we look at the promises, I want us to consider how those promises impact the people of God and then also how those promises impact us. So they're the, they're the main focal points today. Now we're going to pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. 
We read, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David's looking at his fancy cedar timber house, and he's looking at the Ark of the Covenant sitting in a tent. And he says, well, well, maybe it would be nice if God had a house like me. This seems like a pretty great idea. And it seems like he's even got the backing of God's chief spokesperson, the, the prophet Nathan, at this time. Unfortunately, Nathan hasn't actually consulted God. And so in the very next verse, this is what we read. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, And God says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God is fundamentally questioning David's plans here. Again, a bit surprising, right? Because it seemed like a nice idea that David had in the first place. But God says, look, I've never used a house. uh, And if you recall, I never asked for a house. It almost seems to me that God is saying, David, have you really been paying attention to what I'm doing here? And then God does something really interesting. He begins to refocus David and he starts with a recap of what he's done already to establish David. And he goes on to indicate that he's not done with David. He's not done with the nation of Israel yet. So we read in verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and shall be disturbed no more. So God is promising to make a great name for David here. He's promising to bring peace to Israel. And then later on, in verse 11, we read, The Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. God has flipped the situation on its head. Again, it started with David with these good intentions. I'd like to honor God by building him a house. God says, no, you're not building me a house. I'm building you a house. And we're aware, right, that David's already living in this fancy cedar palace. And so it seems immediately obvious that what God is talking about here is something much more significant than just a building. And in fact, that is what the rest of this passage bears out. And as God sets aside David's plans and starts to unpack what he has already decided to do, we start to see that God's plans for David and God's plans for the nation of Israel, they extend far beyond the present circumstances. And I think that's what we should really notice about David's initial focus here. See, David is thinking about buildings, and God is thinking about enacting a plan that will fundamentally alter the course of human history. There's some incredible contrast there, right? 
And it's, it's continuing the theme of contrast that we've seen throughout the books of First and Second Samuel. We've already seen uh, the contrast between God's design for the leadership of the nation of Israel and the kind of leadership that the people demanded for themselves. We've seen contrast between Samuel's idea of what a, a good king should look like and God's actual choice of a king in this humble shepherd boy in David. And now we're seeing contrast here, contrast between David's plans, God's plans. Contrast between David's ability or desire to show honor and God's actual capacity to bestow blessing through his promises. And importantly, this, this contrast between the scope of David's vision, grounded in these immediate circumstances, and the scope of God's vision, which is literally extending across generations of human history. I also want to stop very briefly just to reflect on what this passage is not really saying. Because again, the first time I read through a passage like this, it's tempting to pick up on those major elements of the story, right? So uh, David, <laughs> he wants to do this good thing for God, and you've got that funny dynamic, like, no, you're not gonna build me a house, I'm gonna build you a house. And I'm really scared of myself and potentially others walking away from this with the impression of God as some sort of cosmic Oprah celebrity figure. You know, you get a house, you get a house. And our takeaway should not be that if we want to do something nice for God, then we might get a free house. That, I, I don't know if, if that was likely to be your takeaway, but I just really want to get it out there. Uh, that's not what we're walking away here from. It's not what David was taking away from this situation either. So if we look at what David says later on in the passage in, in verse 18, and I'm not sure if it will be up on the screen there, but um, David explicitly says, you know, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And later on uh, in verse 21, he says, it's because of your promise and according to your own heart that you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So there's no notion in David's mind, and there should be no notion in our mind, that what God is doing here in his kindness and generosity is something that David has earned. And I think that carries for us as well in terms of when we sit like we have been this morning and declare our thanks for what God has done. It's just to remind ourselves that like, he was in no way obliged. And doesn't that make and underscore his greatness? The other aspect of what I want us to walk away from this passage with is simply, wow, God has a plan, right? 3,000 years ago, God had a plan, and today, God is continuing to enact that same plan. And in this passage, that plan is principally represented by a string of promises. We've already seen um, God at various places in the biblical narrative make promises to different people at critical points in time. God uh, makes promises to people like Adam and Eve, to Noah and his family, to Moses and the Israelites as they enter into covenant with him and become his people. Uh, and importantly, there's very uh, specific conditions around the terms on which the Israelites enter the promised land. Human history, as we see it unfold through the Bible, is punctuated and shaped by the promises of God. And in this way, I think it's helpful to understand that when God makes a promise, he's really announcing how that human story is going to unfold. 
and at the same time he is offering us something to build our lives around. See, when the people of Israel stopped following God's law and they were taken in exile out of the promised land, for the people who were reading the scripture and were aware of God's promises, this was not a surprise. It was God's promises that provided this basis of understanding for them to make sense of what was happening around them. And again, that's, that's true for us today. So in this passage, we've already seen God promise to make David's name great, to bring peace for Israel and David, and to make David a house. There's a few more promises to come. I want to pick it up in verse 12. So God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the promises that we're just looking at here, they speak about the short term and the long term. God promises to raise up offspring for David. And we have reference to a son who is going to build a house for God's name. It's interesting, right? The very thing that David wanted to do, God says, no, but your son, he's going to do it. And then there's reference to a son through whom David's house and kingdom and throne is going to be established forever. God is seriously underscoring this aspect of the promise, right? It's repeated at least three times there. And we know from the biblical story and from the archaeological record that Solomon, the son of David, built a house for God's name. That's, that's just the very next generation after David. But neither Solomon nor David lived forever. That's pretty clear. And the last reigning king in the line of David is commonly considered to be Jeho- Jehoiakim. We read about him in, in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, and he is replaced by his uncle Zedekiah when the Babylonians conquer Israel. So it sort of leaves us with this dangling question, in what way is David's throne established forever? And it's at this point that I really want us to, to try to consider the impact that this promise has on the people of God, on the nation of Israel. I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of some of the early readers or hearers of this text because if you know the God of Israel and if you know the certainty of his promises and if you have this this fresh cultural memory of God miraculously bringing Israel into the promised land and then taking them out into exile again, both in accordance to his promises, then you have this very clear idea that nothing can derail the plan that God has announced to King David through this promise. And so there's this incredible tension and anticipation introduced to the story of Israel. Everyone is waiting for the appearance of the new king of Israel, David's son, the promised heir to David's throne, the anointed one, a phrase 
which in Hebrew is translated Messiah. So a thousand years after David, this upstart rabbi with no formal training quizzes the prominent biblical scholars of his time. And we have this fascinating conversation recorded in Matthew 22:42. The rabbi says to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And without any hesitation, they say, the son of David. There's no doubt about it. It's a textbook answer. And as this rabbi is walking around, healing the sick, raising the dead, there are common people without any sort of suggestion or training or prompting are crying out to him. And what do they say? Have mercy on us, son of David. And when this same rabbi enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, there are crowds of people throwing down palm branches, throwing down cloaks like they would for a king. And they are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. It's because of God's promise here in 2 Samuel, everyone was waiting for the appearance of David's son, the new king of Israel. And even today, many who diligently study the promises and the prophecy of these ancient Israeli scriptures and then compare it to the life of Jesus of Nazareth, they recognize him to be David's son, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. So why is this passage here? You know, out of all of the events of David's life that could be captured for us, out of all of the events that could be captured in the history of the nation of Israel, well, this is clearly not a story about the whim of some largely irrelevant king who lived thousands of years ago. This is part of the story of God's redemption plan for mankind. This is God announcing himself and announcing his plan in advance for our sake. This is a piece of the thread that God has woven through the tapestry of human history with the expectation that we would pick it up and follow it and come to the conclusion that he really is who he says he is. So that's the impact that this recorded promise should have on us. God has created a clear expectation through his promise in this passage so that we might have reason to take Jesus seriously. And then again, in the promise of Jesus, he is offering us something to build our lives around. The final part of this passage is David's response to God. I think it's a great inspiration to shape our response as well. David does three things here. He expresses gratitude for that unmerited kindness. He declares God's greatness, talks about how unique he is, but also celebrates the unique work that God is doing in him and doing in Israel. And he invites God's blessing. We've already read some of those verses. And David says, in verse 18, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. He's reflecting here, right, that this is recorded not just for his sake, but it's as instruction for the rest of us as well. And he declares God's greatness in verse 21 
Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And later on in verse 24, he talks about God's work establishing Israel, and you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And he ends by just declaring in faith and expectation and this confidence that God will do and is able to do what he has said he will do. In verse 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. God's promise to establish David's throne forever motivated generations of Israelites to be on the lookout for the arrival of the anointed one. And God's announcement of this promise to David in this passage here motivated this thanksgiving and this faith-filled invitation asking God to fulfill that promise. And the new promise that we have in Jesus is that he will change and renew us and reconnect us with our creator if we're willing to adopt that lifestyle of repentance and belief. So I want to encourage us as the band comes back up again to respond like David. We've already been doing it this morning. But let's show that gratitude for the kindness that he has shown us that he didn't have to show. The kindness that he showed us that we never earned. Let's praise God for the unique work that he is doing in us. And importantly, when we reflect on the strength and the certainty of the promises of God, let's be so diligent in placing those promises at the core of how we live, of how we shape our lives, because nothing else can provide us with that same certainty. And I pray for us. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the certainty that you provide us. I thank you that even though we will have ups and downs at different points in human community, we thank you that you remain the same. We can always count on you to come through on your word, to do exactly as you have promised to do. And so we praise you for that, God. And we pray that you will make us to be a people who find our hope, who find our sense of continuity, our sense of certainty in you. Help us to hope in you. Help us to cling to you in all things, God. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name.